Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Getter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Getter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, Jack Zemlicka, editorial director here at Lesseter Media, spoke with sixth-generation farmer Ben Reinshi, owner and manager of Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa. Reinshi uses innovative and cutting-edge technology and management practices to guide the success of Blue Diamond, which has expanded dramatically over the past two decades. Listen in as Ben talks about some of the innovations in equipment and cropping systems that he expects to see in the near future, including robotics, a shift to true value-added features, carbon farming, and more. Well, we're thrilled to have Ben Rinchi here with us today. And just starting out, Ben, I'd invite you to just share a little bit of background on yourself and your operation, just to give our audience a little bit of an overview on your experience. Sure. I'm a sixth generation farmer in Northeast Iowa. I farm about four hours west of Chicago and three hours south of Minneapolis. That's also a place really near to where they build a lot of green tractors. The John Deere Waterloo Works are about 20 miles from my home and we are in a hotbed of corn production. Cedar Rapids, Iowa is one of two corn crazy towns in the United States where they mill a million bushels of corn a day. We're 40 miles up the road from Cedar Rapids. Our operation is primarily corn and soybeans. We have a heritage of livestock in our operation, but we've specialized since then. And in the past 20 years, we've kind of transitioned from being an 1,800-acre crop and livestock farm to being a 15,000-acre row crop farm. Some things that have changed in our operation over the past two decades, we farm over a wide footprint now. Geographically, we farm 50 miles to our south and 100 miles to our north. This would be much different than my dad or my grandfather farmed. Our farm relies heavily on employed labor. If you'd go back two decades, the principals of the business spent all the time in the cab running the machines. Now, that's not the case anymore. Much more management-oriented. I love to be out in the machines. And over the years, I've logged hours and hours and hours in sprayers and tractors. And believe it or not, I was never that big a combine guy. They left me home to run the corn dryer. I've certainly fixed them enough. Well, I appreciate that summary, Ben. So you mentioned some of the changes that you guys have implemented on your operation. Thinking a little more condensed over, say, the last year to 18 months, what are some of the influences that you have seen kind of impact your decision making from a business and farm management standpoint on your operation? Well, the number one thing is profitability. I mean, if you trace back the recent past, which I think is relevant, we had the commodity boom in kind of 2008 through 13. All of our capital assets that we use on our farm appreciated greatly in value. Land, machinery, infrastructure, all got much more expensive for us. 
And then we went through a very unique period where for the next five years, since 26 years, since 2013, prices have eroded down. We've gone into oversupply and we've had a very unique period in the Corn Belt states where generally we had adequate moisture. We had a cool grain fill period in the fall and we watched prices come down and capital asset values stay at elevated levels. So our present production system economics don't work out very well. Now, that said, we had a change in the weather this year. We had a much warmer, drier period, and our harvest was about here, about two-thirds of the harvest that we've had in the past five years. So we had a very short crop. Prices are accelerating now. That might have something to do with the fact that our government just printed $17 trillion to bail everybody out from COVID, but there may be some inflationary pressures hidden in that and some supply issues. But all of a sudden, it feels like there's some heft to the grain market, though probably we don't have a lot of bushels to sell. So you mentioned, obviously, some of the economic influences there that have certainly impacted farms. And as a relatively larger operation, how have you kind of managed some of the expenses, costs here in the last year, maybe, or evaluated them, if that's been any different than years prior in terms of what you prioritized from that profitability standpoint? Well, the past three or four years, our CapEx budget has been essentially zero. I mean, we're in survival mode. We keep coming out with farm implements with more iPhone 12 features, the back massager chair and the heated breadboard beside your operator seat and that kind of stuff. And how does that add value in my grain production? And the cost keeps getting driven up, it feels like, and the marginal value of these encouterments doesn't feel so great. So we really haven't bought a lot of farm equipment the past four years. And I try and be a little bit funny in saying that. But the other thing is the dependability issue. We've got probably a dozen large frame front wheel assist tractors and articulated four wheel drives in our operation. There were several days in the past few weeks that we had three of them in the shop with techs addressing codes, working on fuel after treatment systems, and any way you slice it, the dependability of this late model equipment has fallen to pieces with some of the compliance issues we've had with, I believe, what you call tier four engines and directives like that. Forgive me for not knowing the exact language but the machines just don't have the rigor that they used to have, in my humble opinion. You mentioned the the volume of tractors that you have on your operation and also some of the reliability aspects there. Certainly one of the things we've heard more about and kind of tracking in our publications is just the brand loyalty aspect. And there's been some shift in that. From your standpoint, obviously with the fleet of equipment that you're running, is that something that has changed in your operation in terms of looking at diversity of brands of equipment or do you kind of go with what you know? Well, we've made some changes in the past year. I mean, if you step back a decade ago when everybody was digitizing agriculture and adding guidance systems, auto steer, collecting data, yield maps, precision agriculture, when we we're implementing that, you know, it was kind of almost like you have an Android or an Apple phone. You kind of had to get on one platform and stick with it. But now when the choice is, can I afford to pay the bank back at the end of the year or not, you make some tough choices. And we uh, bought harvest equipment that was a different color than we had in the past this year. Combines simply wear out and have to be replaced. And we made an exchange there. We've done it on a tractor too. Students of management, innovation comes from the bottom. And everybody my age or older remembers when Asia started sending small, inexpensive cars over because 
Detroit's product was just too big a behemoths that cost too much money, laughed, and well, look how that turned out. And I'm kind of wondering right now if some bottom innovation isn't going to happen here. And especially uh, in the automated. I mean, you look at robotics, and swarm technology, and having small, more automated implements, it could happen. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on that thought of where you see things evolving on the equipment side. And you talked about the fact that there had been kind of this traditional model that dealerships and manufacturers have kind of followed, but you get a sense that there could be some disruption coming to that in the future. Yeah, well, the idea of having smaller, more modular production systems is really interesting to me. I mean, having four 15 or 20 or 25 foot wide planters that work nearly around the clock with less employee labor. And employee labor is a huge issue. That sounds pretty exciting. And then as uh, we deal with more third party land partners, either renting or custom farming, you know, to the extent you get contracts or leases that there certainly is only for a few few years. It looks great to scale up in a modular format with more implements, smaller, add a few, subtract a few. And anybody who's pulling a great big half of a football field wide implements know when they break down, you're doing nothing. Well, if you have four small planners, it's not a crisis if one is getting tuned and adjusted for a little while. There's a lot of things in that that are pretty exciting. But a different direction I'd like to take that. I don't want to just offer criticism without solution or thoughts as forward. Thinking about bringing more value to farmers and farming systems, I think probably one of the next avenues farmers will be able to effectively get a cash flow stream from is carbon sequestration. We'll get back to Jack and Ben Rinchi in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Ben Rainshee as he talks more about the future of carbon sequestration. Who would have thunk that over the years that farmers and climate activists were really pretty much talking about the same thing. It's just that their language didn't align. The climate change people talk about greenhouse gas and global warming and things like that. And we as farmers have always talked about soil erosion and fossil fuel use and the soil mycorrhiza. And come to find out, the two things are interlocked. And kind of the common denominator is carbon. If you're sequestering more carbon in your soils as a farmer, you're probably doing beneficial, regenerative, and sustainable things to the land you farm. And then that pleases the people that are more interested in sort of the welfare of the earth, you know, the climate change folks crowd. So what's happening is I think we're on the cusp of having an industrial carbon market for farmers. So instead of just having more grain to market, if you can farm in a manner that is uh, putting more carbon back into the soil, there's probably going to be a revenue stream for that very soon. And so that's going to take some updates on production systems. 
that's going to take some different characteristics of horsepower units, that's going to take some different planting equipment, that's going to take some different harvest equipment that leaves more residue in place, I imagine, that will lead to better technology to seed things like cover crops or expand crop rotations. I really think carbon is going to be a player in what farmers have in their machine shed. And that's certainly something that's come up quite a bit. It's kind of one of those hot topics, one of those trending opportunities that is being brought to the forefront here as, again, that opportunity for additional revenue and profitability. It kind of Well, hop on an airline flight and you'll see that go to the airline's app and they'll give you a chance to buy on your phone a chance to make your flight carbon neutral. Go to the major package delivery people, FedEx in particular, just signed a deal with Indigo to invest in them. And I know what that's rooted in. It's rooted in their belief that if you can uh, provide farmers a path to farm more sustainably, beneficially, renewably, and sequester more carbon, that helps them make their case that they can continue about their business. There's somewhere in the interface of learning about this topic There's somewhere near 400 parts per million of atmospheric carbon now in the air. And pre-industrial revolution is about 30, if I remember correctly. So by burning fossil fuels and all the enterprise going on the earth, we've made a big change. And so if you can sequester some of that back by the way we farm, maybe we can continue to enjoy warm water, lights, warm food, foods that's been refrigerated, and things that people find near and dear to their heart. And maybe farmers can be part of that revenue stream. Maybe even equipment dealers or manufacturers. Right, right. It does seem like that's going to kind of change that value proposition, I think, for a lot of the stakeholders in the equation right now. Think how much more fun it'd be to sell a new system that brings farmers another revenue stream versus, well, we've got a two-foot wider implement or we've got a tractor with 10% more horsepower. So thinking about kind of how things may be going, kind of what's on the radar for farmers, and I've heard others talk about kind of looking into some of those more diverse, maybe not necessarily traditional farm revenue opportunities of the future and thinking about the opportunity in carbon. How do you see as we're kind of encountering some of that generational transition on farms as well, the folks that are going to be coming in to take over operations or transition into management roles on operations, how do you see them valuing? some of these more maybe outside the box opportunities that are developing an egg. And second part of that would just be how important is it going to be for them from a long-term business management standpoint to kind of embrace some of these things that maybe 15, 20 years ago really weren't even considered or thought about in terms of kind of the traditional farm management system. Oh, I think the uptake's going to be super rapid. I mean, I look at my own children that are kind of in their early 20s for the most part, and they're just going to advance to the digital platform and new ways to make revenue off the land instantly. They're concerned about what all their peers are concerned. They're concerned about the welfare of the earth. They're concerned about where their food came from. They're not very concerned about broad-scale grain production like I was when I was their age. I wanted to farm the entire county, the entire state. They want to do it in a way. They've got a mission to go. So I think it'll come quickly. There will be consolidation. There will be more integrated value chains because if you're going to sell the story of where your food came from, farmers are going to have to reach up and get that consumer preference dollar. It's about making sure we don't commoditize our production in the future. It's about being able to preserve the story of how your crop was produced and how it was marketed and how it got to the table. 
just think of how young people drifted from Blackberries to Androids to Apples and who knows what next. I mean, boom, the minute the technology looked better in one sector, they were gone. Call up Blackberry and ask them how it's going to this week. Thanks to Ben Rainchy of Blue Diamond Farming Company for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.